MSW Media. I signed an order appointing Jack Smith. And nobody knows you. And those who say Jack is a fanatic. Mr. Smith is a veteran career prosecutor. Wait, what law have I broken? The events leading up to and on January 6th. Classified documents and other presidential records. You understand what prison is? Send me to jail! Welcome to episode 41 of Jack, the podcast about all things special counsel. It's Sunday, September 10th, and I'm your host, Andy McCabe. Hey, Andy, I'm Allison Gill. We have lots to cover this week, again, including a CNN exclusive that the investigation into fundraising, our big thing, and Mm -hmm. voting machine breaches is continuing with the federal grand jury meeting again after a four-week break. We also have a motion to vacate and the Department of Justice's opposition, and that's in the D.C. case. And then we have a partial win for Rep. Scott Perry in his fight to keep his phone data from Jack Smith. This has been going on for a while. Yeah, I'm going I'm to maybe call it a temporary win because that one's, uh, as they say, the jury's still out. We haven't, <laughs> we haven't gotten a final, a final, final, final verdict just yet, but we'll get into that later. Uh, we also have new reporting on Giuliani aide Catherine Freeze. Now, am I pronouncing that correctly, AG? Is it Freeze or Freeze? I think it's Freeze, but she's so invisible and difficult to find, no one can ask her how to pronounce it. It doesn't her matter. Name. Yeah, good so point. It makes with, no difference whatsoever. Go I'm with say, your heart. I'm going to say Catherine Freeze, like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> freeze out sort of thing. Okay, so new reporting on Giuliani aide Catherine Freeze and a cooperation agreement between the DOJ and UCL Tavares in the Mar-a-Lago documents case. Uh, so let's start in D.C. Here yeah. we have the fed- the federal grand jury, right? They're the, the we're talking about the grand jury that indicted Donald Trump for conspiracy to defraud the United States, obstruction, and conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, and of course, conspiracy against rights. They met this. Thursday after a month-long break. Ooh, that's interesting little, to me. Yeah, um, little be- little summer recess for the uh, grand jurors, which we know they probably needed. Yeah, and we don't know what that re- what that recess was for, or why they took it, or we. I mean, we really don't know much here because everything in the as we know, everything that happens in a grand jury happens secretly. That's right. That's right. And we also know that prosecutors. You know, they can't use a grand jury unless they're actively investigating like additional crimes or additional people and stuff like that. So really tees up the question of what are they meeting about? Um, We also don't know if they're investigating, if they're continuing to investigate, or if they were specifically brought back uh, to vote on additional indictments. That's always a possibility as well. Uh, We know that the special counsel is investigating voting machine breaches in several key swing states, and we also learned last week that they've been investigating potential crimes related to Harrison Floyd, our one Georgia defendant who spent a little time in jail before he finally bonded out. And of course, what we've been talking about since last year, the investigations into the fundraising from both Donald Trump and Sidney Powell PACs uh, in the aftermath of the election. Yeah. And, and I think that that's really, um, you know, we, we learned early on, September actually of 2021, that they had already for a couple of months been investigating Sidney Powell's PAC. Uh, and that's like, you know, well over, gosh, almost a year, a little over a year, a year and a couple of months before Jack Smith was even appointed. 
Right. Um, so, uh, you know, I've, I've been wondering where that investigation would head. And now we seem to have a little bit of an insight in it. Um, and new reporting from, you know, your colleagues over at CNN, Zachary Cohen and Paula Reed, who are doing a bang up job, by the way. They um, are. Uh, Hannah also and, and, and Polance, Caitlin Polance. Yep. Over at CNN, they say questions. This is Cohen and Reed. Uh, questions asked of two recent witnesses indicate Jack Smith is focusing on how money raised off baseless claims of voter fraud was used to fund attempts to breach voting equipment in several states won by Biden. And prosecutors have focused their questions on the role of Sidney Powell. I find that very fascinating. Um, And they, they have found this out because according to invoices obtained by CNN, Powell's nonprofit, Defending the Republic, hired forensics firms that ultimately accessed voting equipment in four swing states, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Arizona. Now, Powell has pled not guilty to similar charges or charges related to illegally accessing voting systems in Georgia. That's, you know, some of the overt acts on her on her part. Um, you know, she filed for a, a speedy trial. Um, we know Kenneth Cheesebro was like, get away from me. And because uh, he also did. But the judge ruled down in Fulton County that they have to be tried together. And that's coming up in October, pending any delays, you know, the typical delays that we tend to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Powell has also been identified by CNN as one of Trump's unindicted co-conspirators in Smith's federal election indictment of Trump, the one man four count indictment. And Smith's grand jury, this grand jury is set to expire uh, next week, September 15th. Um, which actually this week, but it can be extended beyond then. Uh, he hasn't ended it. Uh, witnesses interviewed by Smith's prosecutors in recent weeks were also asked about her role in the hunt for evidence of voter fraud in the 2020 election, including her own nonprofit group that, you know, that they provided money to fund those efforts. So it's not just whether she was spending the cash on illegal access to voting machines, but also using it to fund the hunt for voter fraud. And Andy, this is interesting to me because it seems to me, you know, it's not illegal to raise money to look for voter fraud. But if you tell your donors you're raising money for court challenges, that could be problematic. But it's especially problematic if you use the funds to pay for illegal activity like breaching voter data. That seems to me like you and I have been talking about this wire fraud case for a while Mm -hmm. and like, you know, funding the big lie and, and defrauding donors. But we just learned from this CNN reporting that that these witnesses are being asked whether this money or these or, you know, been shown invoices that this money fund funded Ill, potentially illegal activity. That that puts this wire fraud case in a whole new light to me, because that seems way more open and shut than fundraising off the big lie. It does. It, it's it's incredibly powerful evidence in the underlying uh, voter theft of voter, uh, data case, right? So if she's charged, um, let's say she's charged federally for, you know, theft of computer information or, or, um, specifically for accessing the voter stuff, proof like these invoices that she paid, you know, the company that conducted the theft was paid by her pack is very powerful evidence that ties her to the allegedly criminal activity. So that's one bucket that makes it super, super important. But the other side of that coin is what you just mentioned. Um, if she was raising the money under specific 
assurances to her donors, hey, this is going to be used, let's say, for example, to challenge, uh, you know, the results of state elections in court, and then she takes that money and uses it to pay for the cyber ninjas or somebody else, that is an entirely different offense of, of mail fraud or wire fraud based on the miss, uh, you know, she's, she would have been in that hypothetical ripping off her donors. You can't raise for one reason and then spend for a totally different reason. Therein lies the fraud. Yeah. And not only that, but, you know, from the CNN piece, Powell promoted defending the Republic as a nonprofit focused on funding post-election legal challenges. Uh, as it disputed, as Trump's team disputed results in key states. Those challenges and fundraising efforts underpinning them were all based on the premise that evidence of widespread voter fraud was already in hand. And that also makes this um, a fraudulent fundraising, um, you know, allegedly. Obviously, everything is, is alleged here. Uh, but to to say that you already have the voter fraud, to not have it, and to fundraise yeah. off of that concept is almost like a third bucket. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. because they were using this to, to ex post facto desperately look for voter fraud that they had claimed that they already had. And they were still unable to find it. But I don't think it's relevant that they were able to find it or not because they've raised that money under false pretenses. False pretenses. Yeah. So you can see how these cases can be very... I don't want to say tough, but very detailed, very nuanced for the prosecutors, because these cases typically turn on the real specifics of the language in the whatever it was, mailings, advertisements, emails, however they advertised or requested the donations for the pack, they will have to go uh, into great detail analyzing the specific language of those statements and what they, you know, um, how they characterized what they were going to do with the money and all that stuff. And then there'll be, uh, there'll be a, a real drill down on the individual people who drafted those statements and then who above them approved the release of those statements. And you got to be able to tie all that back to, in this case, Sidney Powell. So they, they can be complicated cases, um, even in, in instances like this, where it seems from the top level, from the 100,000 foot view, it's like, wow, yeah, I mean, this <laughs> seems crazy. She took this money and gave it to people to go out and steal, um, you know, information from county voting systems. But uh, nevertheless, I think it's a great sign that, hey, Jack Smith's team, they are on this thing like a dog with a bone. Teeth are in. They are not letting go. And uh, the grand jury is still working at it. Absolutely. And, it, you know, it could be they're looking at these things separately or together. Um, you know, a lot of uh, pundits and a lot of experts, uh, Weissman, uh, Lisa Rubin, a lot of folks, the talking heads that I see on, on cable news network, are assuming, and, and probably rightfully so, that this is a look into the fundraising and maybe not necessarily a look into superseding indictments for the you know six co-conspirators in the Trump D.C. case. Um, uh, but they have raised th that possibility because they can bring, Jack Smith can bring separate indictment, um, not that he doesn't have to supersede the Trump indictment. That's right. He can bring separate indictments on these, on these other six. But again, my worry is that they will file to consolidate um, or somehow try to muck up the the, the simplicity yeah. of the Trump indictment, which has been compared to a rifle shot 
uh, as opposed to uh, Fulton County's um, shotgun blasts. Yeah, uh, yeah. Wide pattern. And, you know, I'm not criticizing one over the other, but one is most definitely going to be done a lot faster. Yeah, I, I think that the that the sprawling Rico case is necessary. It's just going to take forever. Uh, and that's fine. That's that's justice grind slow. So, you know, that's I, I if I were Jack Smith, I wouldn't do anything to threaten the simplicity of my current indictment. And if he does make a move on the co-conspirators, I'm sure he will have gamed all of that out to to prevent that from happening. Yeah, I mean, his uh, the way that he approached indicting Trump uh, with that kind of rifle shot, small number of counts, one defendant, it's all so intentional. It's so clearly strategized to bring the most significant uh, person to trial before the election. And I can't imagine that he would do anything at this point that could possibly jeopardize that strategy. Like he knows all of this better even than you and I do, uh, (laughs) sure. (laughs) That's the Um, main, that's his main goal with this simple. Yeah, he's got years, literally years that he could take to kind of clean off the rest of the table. Right? The mop-up cases, as you call them. That's right. The mop-ups could go on for a very long time. And his, you know, his remit, his jurisdiction is broad. It wasn't just to look at Donald Trump. It's to look at all of these efforts that could have been intended to overturn the results of the election. So, uh, yeah, I think those folks who, certainly the ones that we know were referenced as uh, unindicted, unidentified co-conspirators in, in the Trump indictment, uh, and many others, you know, I don't think they're getting really sound sleep at night uh, for good reason. No. And, uh, you know, some of the folks who, we, you know, we found out today were not indicted, uh, but were recommended for indictment by the special purpose grand jury in Fulton County, including Lindsey Graham, Cleta Mitchell, um, Kelly Loeffler, Kelly Leffler and, and David Perdue, um, all of those folks. Um, and there were there were many. Um, they, they were recommending indictments of upwards of 30 people. Um, which, you know, with the complexity of the case as it is, I can't imagine how, how complex yeah. Could it would you imagine, be. I think it was 39. <laughs> the count of that the special grand jury recommended was 39. Um, and you know, that's a, that is, that's a huge number. We, we think it's unwieldy at 19. It would have been a complete madness. It was taking years to get that thing mm-hmm. done. Um, but there's all kinds of reasons that those people may not have been indicted, you know, it's a special grand jury. So it's not a grand jury that returns an in indictments. All they do is make a recommendation to prosecutors. Prosecutors then still have to make a decision, like how good do we think our evidence is? Because the, the special grand jury is investigative, right? Mm-hmm. How good do we think the evidence is? Who would we really need as witnesses in a trial that we do bring? And maybe it would be better not to charge those people. Or some people like Lindsey Graham just presents a whole host of really complicated constitutional issues that no doubt he would fight all the way to the Supreme Court. How's that going to impact our prosecution? It's going to really slow things down, complicate things. So there's all kinds of good reasons for uh, not going forward and indicting uh, certain folks. But we'll we'll see. I'm sure we'll hear more about that as we go on. Yeah, but they're also probably not sleeping easy either. Um, nope. And And we also don't know how many of them may be cooperating. We do know that there are at least eight, or there are, I think, eight um, electors fraudulent electors that were offered offered immunity Mm -hmm. in exchange for their testimony. They appear on that list. Um, And, you know, that was after um, that that report came out before 
those immunity deals were offered. So we don't know how many of those people are uh, cooperating. Mike Flynn, you know, for example, yeah. um, was recommended for indictment. Why? Why was he not part of this indictment? And none of the what's in the report gives us any inkling of why they weren't. No. Um, but it also kind of gives you a little bit of a p- potential roadmap of cooperators in, in the federal case. So, yeah, Flynn is amazing to me. He's like the <laughs> right? ghost of this whole thing. All of a sudden he just dropped out of, you know, contention for anything. Um, he's not thought of as one of the six uh, unindicted or an unidentified co-conspirators in the Trump indictment. He really hasn't appeared anywhere, which raises a lot of questions as to whether or not he might be cooperating. It's possible. It's also possible that prosecutors would reject an effort by him to cooperate because gosh, does he have a history? Terrible witness. Of, does he yeah, have a history I mean, like, of being a terrible witness and withdrawing guilty pleas? And the, the crazy statements that they would have to somehow explain away on cross examination before they got you know shoved right back at him on uh, when uh, being cross examined. I mean, it's he would be tough. It'd be hard, I think, to get people to believe. But him. then again, we don't have a Bill Barr to help protect his case. Yeah, that's true. But that true. doesn't mean there won't be one, in, uh, you know, any time in the future. That's true. All right, we have uh, well one last bit from this story about Sidney Powell that I just wanted to get out before we take a break here. Um, Smith's team has specifically asked witnesses about certain conspiracy theories pushed by Powell, including that Dominion Voting Systems has ties to former Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez and featured software he used to rig his own election. Since then, Dominion and Smartmatic have said, um, those tallies were changed after our machines were used in Venezuela. And also, what? Uh, so <laughs> so I, don't, I don't see that as being a, a problem, uh, you know, in, on Earth One. But it is interesting that Jack Smith is asking about these various conspiracy theories. And, and one of the main reasons is, is because you know, there was a a proposal made by that group, the Mike Flynn's and the Rudy Giuliani's of the world, for the Department of Defense to seize voting machines. Kosh Patel had been installed over there, probably to head up that that work. Oh, if but Kosh then, says it's a good idea, we must do it. Oh, I know, because <clears throat> especially because he has a dollar sign in his name, that makes it there legit. You go. Um, but in order to, and it was, it was told to Trump and his team in order to do anything with voting machines for the Pentagon, we have to have evidence of foreign interference. And I think maybe that birthed the Italian satellite thing and the bamboo in the thing and the, and the Venezuela thing, you know, trying to just whole cloth make up foreign election interference when you got Russia sitting right there. Uh, but, you know, they were interfering on behalf of Trump. <laughs> <laughs> don't look in that direction, whatever you do. We don't want to look over there. Yeah. But I think that kind of, uh, you know, conspiracy theories about foreign election interference might have been so that they could justify the Department of Defense or the Pentagon somehow seizing voting machines and rerunning the election. Um, yeah, it's uh, definitely could be that. It's also could be just great stuff to have and the off chance that Sidney Powell actually wants to take the stand someday because I'd be walking through, you know, showing videos of every one of these lunatic statements and then asking her, what evidence did you have of this? And did you ever find any proof of that? And, you know, it's, um, it would be potentially powerful cross-examination material as well. Yeah. And on the stand, she says, we're looking for it. Donate to defend the Republic dot fart and we will make it happen. Yeah. who, Who knows what? what she would have done. All right. 
We have more witness testimony about voting machine breaches in other states besides Coffee County, Georgia. And we'll talk about that after this quick break. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. All right, everybody, welcome back. Continuing with the CNN reporting, special counsel prosecutors have also heard from other witnesses, Andy, about efforts to illegally access voting systems in other states. One witness who met with Smith's team earlier last month, that's Bernard Carrick, spoke at length about how Trump allies access voting systems in Antrim County, Michigan, shortly after Election Day. And those sort of they were trying to get allegations to put into their bogus lawsuit. To, to look f- to try to back up these, again, bogus election fraud claims. Mm-hmm. In April, an FBI agent and a prosecutor from Smith's special counsel office interviewed a Pennsylvania resident named Mike Ryan, who used to work for a wealthy Pennsylvania Republican donor named Bill Bockenberg. And during his interview, which Ryan described to CNN, he told him about it. Mm-hmm. Ryan says he told federal investigators that Bockenberg worked with Sidney Powell and other Trump lawyers to access voting systems in Pennsylvania and other states after the election in 2020. And Bockenberg, who helped organize Pennsylvania's fake electors, was subpoenaed by the House Select Committee last year, but there's no public indication he testified. And then Ryan says he told federal investigators that after the 2020 election, Bockenberg was in direct contact with Trump and a host of the former president's most prominent allies, including Rudy Giuliani. 
and John Eastman. So there's this there's this Bakkenberg fellow now, and we're now we're talking Pennsylvania. It's not just Coffee County. We have Antrim County. We have Fulton County is is yeah. actually Pennsylvania, Fulton County, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. not uh, Georgia. And there's more to come. I'll talk about him in a second. But what are your thoughts on this Bakkenberg guy? This is really fascinating. You know, they it's like you were getting a a little peek into the nuts and bolts of the investigation, right? They they somehow turn up uh, Ryan. Ryan takes him to Bakkenberg. According to Ryan, Bakkenberg has could is in a it could be in a position to provide amazing direct evidence, right? That's because he was allegedly in direct contact with all these characters, Giuliani, Eastman, and Trump specifically. So super important guy to actually talk to. And what do we know about him? Approximately nothing, right? <laughs> There's no record that he t- talked to the committee. And we don't, we're not aware of any like uh, subpoena fights or any, or grand jury appearances. Doesn't mean they didn't happen. It just means we're not aware of them. To me, this smells like a guy who was, who was very covetously protected by the federal prosecutors. Yeah, so, that's what I feel like too. Yeah, so he likely talked to the committee, but did so under kind of special agreement. And um, you know, you you if you thought if you were on Jack Smith's team and you felt like this guy was going to be a vital uh, witness to some of your future federal prosecutions, you really don't want him going on record with the committee months earlier. So. Um, yeah, I think he's someone who would make probably a pretty respectable, believable, and therefore powerful government witness. I don't know that he is. I'm just speculating that, uh, according to Ryan, what he had direct access to could be very valuable. Yeah. And, and CNN even says it's, it's unclear if Bakkenberg's been contacted by Smith's team or the FBI. Uh, and of course, Bakkenberg did not reply to requests for comments. Uh, from CNN. This sounds like like you. I've, I'm with you. This sounds like a super protected witness. Uh, and he's a rich dude. So that helps him as well. He's yes, got leagues of lawyers navigating this thing for him. He's able to kind of stay away from the media. He's probably hard to find, hard to, not somebody you could just like walk up and start asking him questions while he's on his shift at Starbucks. So yeah, it has all the all the stench of a of a protected yeah. witness. Yeah, that and and uh, nobody really has ever heard of this guy. That helps um, right. in a lot of cases. You know, you, you don't have to have any kind of preconceived notions from a jury about a person. Like if you brought Mike Flynn up to the stand exactly. in DC. <laughs> exactly, he's not Mike Flynn. Yeah, <laughs> so, it's, who's this? Uh, who's this fella? Oh, former general. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's yeah, not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, All right, let's go to Michigan, because the Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson told CNN she's spoken to investigators at both the state and federal level about the push to access voting systems. Benson says when she met with Smith's team earlier this spring, this has been going on for a while, she, like Bernie Carrick, was asked specifically about efforts related to Antrim County. That's in Michigan, where where Powell and a lawyer named Stephanie Lambert helped fund a team of pro-Trump operatives who accessed voting systems. Now, Lambert has been charged by state prosecutors in Michigan for her alleged involvement in the conspiracy to access voting machines there. And Lambert is also linked to a breach in Fulton County, Pennsylvania, where she provided legal representation for the county after two Republican county officials secretly allowed a forensic firm to copy voting machine data. So Lambert, you know, while Jack Smith is investigating this, Michigan was like, we're going. And they just, yeah. they indicted their, 
their people on on that uh, voting machine breach, uh, as Fonnie Willis has has done. And so it's going to be interesting to see where the line is between what federal prosecutors do and what state prosecutors do. And right now, the line seems to be at um, a kind of the, the national team, the Powell Giuliani right. Uh, free sort of uh, team that went around to all these different Patrick Byrne, you know, that whole group, you know, it, that seems to be where the cutoff is, where everybody in, in the individual states, maybe Jack Smith is like, you do, you do them. I got the top. It could be, it could be kind of a, uh, you know, prioritizing resources sort of thing. We know that he's interested in it, right? It's one of the main themes in the Trump indictment. Um, I still think that he's coming back around for these people. I think they're they are look potentially looking at some federal criminal liability. I just think he's kind of not going to do it now for the reasons we discussed earlier in the show. Um, I I I I don't think any of them are safe. Um, and someone like this, you know, if if the state's going to take a run at someone uh, like this lawyer um, Lambert, then fine. Do, do what you're going to do. He can still come in behind them, separate sovereigns. He can charge for whatever he thinks he has federally. Um, or, you know, that could be just one more motivation to get someone like Lambert to cooperate. So you never know. Um, but that's what it's I was thinking. Be... I mean, you know, you get these cooperations on the state level. That's going to that's going to filter up to the to the federal level as well. So, yeah, absolutely. You can't Go walk into state court and admit everything you did under a cooperation agreement, and then expect to defend yourself against very similar charges at the federal level. You got to go if you're cooperating. You got to go all the way. You got to cooperate everywhere. Yeah. Now get this. You know Lambert, um, as I said, was not only charged in Michigan, but she's linked to a breach in Fulton County, Pennsylvania, and that breach is currently the subject of an ongoing probe being conducted by a prosecutor selected by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Did anybody know about that? There is wow, a special prosecutor was, in that Pennsylvania. That was a new one to me. Yeah, me too. So and the, there are just, um, you know, Fonnie Willis kind of uh, Jocelyn Benson, Dana Nessel type investigations, I should say, going on in, in, in Pennsylvania as well. Yeah. And Lambert has also been identified by CNN as an unindicted co-conspirator in the Georgia indictment which alleges she worked with Sidney Powell to secure voting system data that was copied from Coffee County. So she's all over the place. So she, Lambert seems like something that the feds would be interested in as well. Now, emails obtained by American Oversight indicate Bockenberg, we'll talk about that guy again, was involved in discussions about funding for the Arizona audit and helped facilitate mm. similar reviews in Pennsylvania. So the, this team has their fingerprints in most of these key swing states that Biden won in an effort to steal this voting machine data to try to somehow prove that there was some sort of election fraud. And Powell was funding it. Yeah, the, the whole thing. Okay, if you're listening to this and you're finding it hard, <laughs> hard to keep all these players straight without a scorecard, uh, I am as well. But I think the the... The message here is like the scope, the the array of potentially illegal activity that this, you know, the A-team was involved in, the Powells, the Eastmans, the Cheeseboroughs, the Giuliani's, and of course, Trump calling the shots and with a high degree of knowledge and involvement in all of this stuff. It's just, it's staggering. It's staggering. And they really, for a group of lawyers... 
they they took some unbelievably uh, irresponsible risks. Forget about the fact that they're trying to overturn democracy. Let's try to put that aside for a second. <laughs> in terms of just their own self-preservation, these are lawyers and they're engaging in like illegal, pretty clearly illegal activity in multiple states at the same time. Um, it just goes to show you like the level of, I don't know, it must have been like straight up desperation. You know, they have to deliver some sort of result uh, for Trump, uh, or or just a desire to right to be the person that shows up with the gold, you know, with the gold brass ring or the lucky penny that they discovered in uh, Antrim County or Coffee County or wherever it was. Uh, it's really a staggering, um, a staggering array of of potentially very serious criminal activity. Yeah, and I guess what for a spot in his cabinet? I mean, you know, I guess to be one of the very best people, you know. Yeah, one of the very, yeah, the very best. <laughs> Only the very best people. Be best. That's right. That's All right. right. Well, um, it's good to know Jack Smith is investigating the, vote, the voting machine breaches in multiple key swings, uh, swing states, though many witnesses involved in Coffee County down in Georgia have testified they have not yet been contacted by the special counsel's office. Um, so let's uh, real quick uh, talk a little bit about uh, Freeze. Yeah, so... You know, this is the mysterious Rudy Giuliani aide who evaded indictment in Fulton County. Uh, and her name is, we've decided, Catherine Freeze. Um, so we have from Betsy Woodruff Swan and Kyle Cheney at Politico, according to them, she helped Giuliani woo potential donors to finance Trump's effort to reverse the results of the election. She helped draft a, quote, strategic communications plan for a final push to keep Trump in office. And this is apparently a document that became a focus for the January 6 investigators and that called for placing ads on radio and TV alleging widespread voter fraud. Uh, at the same time, Freeze warned other Trump aides that their claims about dead people voting in Georgia were weak, but Trump continued to trumpet those claims anyway. So it was like, hey, What's with the weak sauce on the dead Georgia voters? Come on, bring me, bring me some real stiffs who voted. Bring me Would some live dead people. <laughs> I need more dead people. This is, I'm not. Bring out your dead bonk. You know. <laughs> I don't have great confidence in your dead people. I need better dead people who who voted. Uh, a host of emails and documents exchanged by Freese and other Giuliani aides have been turned over to the special counsel Jack Smith according to a person familiar with the investigation. Now, Freeze has not been accused of any wrongdoing uh, by prosecutors or by Congress. And she's not been mentioned in either of the criminal cases charging Trump with conspiring to subvert the election. Uh, two Georgia election workers who are suing Giuliani for defamation tried unsuccessfully to subpoena and depose Freeze. But after searching for her for months, they gave up, saying that Freeze had vanished. They also couldn't get discovery out of Bernie Carrick or Rudy because of Rudy's failure to produce discovery. The judge awarded Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss a partial summary judgment, leaving only damages to be determined at trial. So Rudy's failure to produce discovery and respond to things like that really came back to bite him in a hard way. But this evasive uh, freeze seems to have slipped through the net. And dodge service or something. I don't know how hard they tried to look for her, but uh, apparently they were not successful. Yeah, a House January 6th Select Committee sought to depose her, but never managed to get her testimony. Uh, and we'll see if Jack Smith has more luck. 
Uh, he has a lot more tools at his disposal than Congress to get her testimony if he, he needs it. Um, and he, she doesn't feel uh, like a uh, like a secure secret witness to me, like the Bakkenberg guy does. Uh, she feels just like we can't find her. <laughs> She's hiding in the house with the with the blinds drawn. She sees the <laughs> service guy coming up the path. She's like, no, no, I'm not here today. Uh, I'm kidding, obviously, but. She's you know, in Siberia with Tara Reid or something. I don't know. If Jack Smith wants to find her, he's got the entirety of the FBI behind him. <laughs> he can probably find her. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Maybe she's like a super, uh, you know, she's a, a superhuman powers of uh, evasion. But uh, I don't. I wouldn't bet on that. And I would expect we'll see or hear more from her at some point in the future. Okay. Yeah. We are going to be right back with an update on the Scott Perry phone warrant and a weird motion to vacate filed by Donald Trump in D.C. So stay with us. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA, as a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. All right. From MSNBC contributor Lisa Rubin on Twitter. And yes, I still call it Twitter. I'm glad you do. She says, how desperate is Donald Trump to slow the federal election interference case down? Desperate enough to oppose the government's motion to seal an unspecified filing simply because he didn't have an opportunity to oppose the sealing request. <laughs> Not wow. the motion itself, just the request. But in a rapid response, the DOJ, Jack Smith's office, says 
It not only followed the procedure laid out in the protective order, but also suggests its underlying motion is about Trump's daily extrajudicial statements that threaten to prejudice the jury pool in this case. Now, despite all that, Shutkin granted Trump's motion, vacating her decision to let the government file its motion under seal. Instead, she ordered a briefing on the sealing request that will last through 913 and implies that, uh, that going forward, there will be a briefing on any motions for leave to seal. That's interesting. Um, she, the way that I read it was that she was going to have this one briefing to resolve any future issues with motions for leave. But Lisa Rubin is saying it seems that she's indicating that there will be hearings on motions for leave to file under seal, not not for the actual filing itself. Um, and, and that, to me, could be just her crossing the T's and dotting the I's, taking away something that could be uh, appealable, though not successfully, but, uh, you know, a reason to appeal any decision that comes down. Uh, and I don't know how or if this would necessarily delay things. Um, every time, if every time the government wants to file something under seal because of a protective order, they have to have a hearing about it. Yeah. Seems like that could slow things down. It could, but it also, I think what she's doing here is really um, acknowledging the the current uh, antagonistic state between these sides, right? What she doesn't want is for the government to just request that everything be sealed and then have to sit around and wait to see which which requests the Trump team is going to decide to like drop anchor on and and oppose and then demand briefing. Like she's just setting up a rate, assuming they're going to be on the opposite side of every issue. She's setting up a regular process that um, will do two things. One, it'll cause the government to think twice before they request that things are sealed. And that might cut down on the overall volume of that stuff, which in the long run could make things a little quicker. And two, it means as soon as they file the motion to seal, they'll file it with a briefing schedule request and you just immediately start that process. So you're not like coming back into court, constantly yelling at each other, pointing the finger. They did the wrong thing. They did the wrong thing. You have a process in place now that governs this going forward. Yeah, okay. So I see how that could definitely um, keep things moving as opposed to slow them down by setting up that process now so that any time the government wants to file something under seal, they there's an immediate they hearing know, and they yeah, get it this done. This is what it's going to take. Now, to be clear, in most cases, this kind of penny-ante stuff doesn't happen. Like the government requests to seal something and usually the other side will agree it's typically like information that could like expose a witness's identity or something like that. Yeah, and there's a protective um, order here too over right. discovery. And, but and you're not so going to get be... in standard, um, you know, you're not going to get standard agreement to anything in this case. They're going to, because they're going to fight, because they're, that's their, they're going to fight everything. And, you know, the fight alone is worth the fight because it delays. Yep. Yep. Well, we'll see what happens. Uh, I'll yeah. be interested to to know what happens in that hearing. Um, next up, what do we have about uh, Scott Perry? Yeah, so this is the infamous Scott Perry phone saga. Um, now, you everyone will remember that uh, a long time ago, uh, Tom Wyndham wanted to seize Representative Scott Perry's phone because he had probable cause to believe there was evidence of a crime on the device. But, as we've later learned, the FBI at the Washington field office refused to sign off on it. So they basically said, no, we're not going to do it. We're not going to execute that warrant. 
So Wyndham then sent the inspector general to seize the phone. Uh, The IG investigators imaged the phone, which is the way you do this. You have a warrant to seize the device. You take it and you make a copy of it. And then the prosecutors have to go back to get a search warrant to exploit it, to get the information off of it. So they imaged the phone. They then sought a second search warrant to get the contents. And Perry then sued to block them under the speech and debate clause that protects Congress from having to turn over information like this in certain circumstances. Okay, so since then, that lawsuit by Perry, all the filings and rulings have been under seal. We do know that Beryl Howell, Judge Beryl Howell, granted DOJ access to the phone, and then Perry very quickly appealed that that decision, and the issue's basically been sitting with the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals ever since. So this week we learned the D.C. Circuit Court has made a decision. Unfortunately, the full ruling is under seal. So we can only go off the information in the minute order uh, that we can see on the docket. And what we know is that the appeals court declined to issue a broad order blocking Jack Smith from accessing the phone data, but they also didn't endorse Judge Howell's ruling, and they've remanded the case back to the district court to reconsider its decision about, quote, individuals outside the federal government, communications with members of the executive branch, and communications with other members of Congress regarding alleged election fraud. So you will recall, I'm sure, AG, that that, those were the groups of information that Beryl Howell said the prosecutors could access, right? So she tried to respect some privilege of the speech and debate clause, which basically says, Conversations with other legislators about legislative business uh, cannot be reached by the federal government under subpoena. But she carved out of that, well, his conversations with individuals outside the federal government would not constitute legislative business. Communications with members of the executive branch would not constitute legislative business, nor would communications with other members of Congress regarding alleged election fraud. So that's what the government was thinking they were going to get. And now it seems that it's being sent back to the district court to kind of rethink Beryl Howell's uh, somewhat broad um, decision favoring the government. Yeah. And there was a big hint in the minute order that um, CNN had left out of this reporting, or excuse me, Politico had left out of this reporting. At the end of that, the communications with members of Congress, executive branch, et cetera, it says before or prior to the, the voting on HB1, House Bill 1, and the certification of the votes on January 6th. And what that says to me, at least, is that this, this panel on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, which is made up of Henderson, Katsas, and Rao, by the way, Reagan mm-hmm. and two Trumps. Yep. Um, a- and what they're saying is that it seems like they have determined, and this is just a guess based on that language, that his communications with those three groups of people uh, are protected by the speech or debate clause because he was preparing to vote on House Bill 1 and also preparing to uh, deciding whether or not to certify the election on January 6th. This is the same argument Lindsey Graham used to mm-hmm. try to get out of testifying in Fulton County. He That's failed right. in that argument, but he was also not indicted. So, and again, we don't know why, uh, but it might be because she just wanted to avoid the whole speech or debate clause mess. It's a very powerful privilege. 
and it's very broad. And uh, but honestly, I think that if this gets appealed on bonk to the full panel of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, I think it would be overturned uh, and Judge Beryl Howell's ruling allowed to stand. I don't know what would happen at the Supreme Court level, but I imagine this will go all the way up from one party or another. There's no question. I mean, if if the government wins on an en banc rehearing, Scott Perry knows he's close to winning it, right? Because he almost won it. He basically is in the in the winner's chair today. And so there's he's got every incentive in the world to then if he, you know, if he suffers at the en banc rehearing then he would definitely push it to the Supreme Court. It's also a significant national issue. It's a separation of powers issue. It's, you know, it goes right to the heart of what is probably the strongest legal privilege that members of Congress uh, enjoy. So, yeah, there's no question. There's going to be a ton of interest in the way this thing plays out um, from people who aren't normally as interested in this case, but... (laughs) Yeah. Fascin- you know, really zoned in on these uh, separation of powers type issues. Yeah. And if SCOTUS takes up the case, it could take forever um, mm-hmm. to argue and get a ruling there. But my feeling is that the Supreme Court will not want to make a determination on the speech or debate clause or, or answer this separation of powers issue at this time and might just let an en banc decision stand if they go en banc or this decision stand if they go straight to the Supreme Court, um, which is why I think Jack Smith will probably file uh, on Bonk or maybe to the Supreme Court. Uh, but I don't see the Supreme Court stepping in here personally. Uh, but if they do, it'll delay the hell out of this. And they'll never, yeah. you know, we'll, we'll be looking for it another year and a half or two if they if they win to get access to Scott Perry's communications. So I, you know, Jack Smith has to decide how important it is to him to have those communications. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And, and you know, not for nothing, as we discussed in uh, a couple of episodes ago, DOJ keeps an, a very close eye on these things because they're thinking, like, what does a, what, you know, what will the long-term effects on our investigations and political corruption cases and other cases involved, that could involve uh, members of Congress, um, do we need to preserve a a specific legal position here for presidential, uh, you know, reasons. So, yeah, there's a lot swirling around on this one. I think we certainly haven't heard the end of this story, um, but we'll see. Could could take a little time to get to the end. Yeah, and another option might be that, you know, we might not see an appeal at all from the Department of Justice because perhaps they have all these communications from the other parties who Scott Perry was communicating with that they don't have to deal with speech or debate stuff with. Um, and so maybe they don't want that decision at all. I, I tend to doubt it. I don't think it would have gotten this far if there wasn't something on that phone that they needed specifically that they might not be able to get elsewhere. Um, but, who you know, who knows? Uh, if, a, if an appeal happens, it'll happen, I think, relatively soon, and we'll be able to, to, to see whether or not Jack Smith wants to continue to try to get at what is in this particular electronic device. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see one way or the other. All right. We're going to head down to Florida and then take listener questions, but we need to take a quick break first. So everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. 
From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is lawyers, guns, and money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Welcome back. Okay, from Hannah Rabinowitz at CNN, Mar-a-Lago IT worker UCL Tavares has struck a cooperation agreement with the special counsel's office in the federal case over President Donald Trump's handling of classified documents. And this is according to Tavares's former defense attorney, uh, Stanley Woodward. Now, Woodward included this in a new court filing. Andy, uh, I, heard, I saw something on Twitter. Somebody, somebody said, you picked a fine time to leave me, you <laughs> seal. <laughs> That's so mind. great. Oh pardon, my gosh. pardon my horrible singing voice, but I, I thought that was, uh, now Kenny I have that Rogers. in my head every time I see his name. I can't believe I didn't think of that. Oh, killing myself here. <laughs> I know. I punched myself in the face when I saw that. I was like, why That's- didn't I think of that? That's amazing. That's amazing. Now, of course, we thought that this is what was going on for the last couple of weeks. So I wasn't super uh, surprised about it. Um, right. We, we kind of, the writing was on the wall, but now we have yeah, confirmation, yeah. right? Especially through the entire, you know, conflict process. But in any case, we know that Tavera struck the deal of prosecutors after he was threatened with prosecution, um, according to Stanley Woodward, uh, who included that in his filing as well. So according to the terms of the deal explained in the filing, Tavares agreed to testify in the classified documents case and in exchange will not be prosecuted. Hmm. Well, you know, this this filing marks the first public acknowledgement that Jack Smith has won the cooperation of a key witness. Like we said, we kind of had a feeling this whole time. Um, but, you know, this is now it's it's being... Um, it's being te- tele- like telecast. It's being broadcasted by by Stanley Woodward. 
And and what's interesting is that Stanley Woodward is trying to he's trying to say in these conflict of interest hearings and in his opposition to have a Garcia hearing about a conflict of interest for him representing uh, two of these key witnesses, but not anymore. He's not representing Tavares anymore. He's saying, well, we just don't have Tavares testify and we don't have to have this conflict of interest. I won't have to, you know, cross examine him or on the stand or, you know, my my second lawyer can do it or whatever. He's just saying Tavares shouldn't testify. But he is also saying that he won immunity. He he as part of this cooperation agreement. He's not going to be indicted because he's giving testimony. Yeah. Um, yeah, which, that's how it works. <laughs> which, you know, yeah, w- if he wasn't giving his testimony, he would be charged. So I, I, I'm i not real sure where Stanley Woodward is trying to come from here. It's um, kind of amazing to me, too, on the from the perspective of, like, look how quickly this guy Woodward, who was Tavares's lawyer, has cut and run on him now. Yeah. Right. He's he's exposing all this stuff in his court filings for his own purposes to serve his other client, which is I've never seen anything like this before. And I cooperated a lot of people during my years as an agent and, of course, oversaw a lot of cases with cooperators, um, you know, later in my career. And typically, you know, the the lawyer that gets dropped just kind of walks away because lawyers are they generally try to be careful about. Um, observing the ethical rules and not doing something or saying something or going on the record with some sort of statement that's that could really be against the interests of your former client. That's pretty much, you know, baseline thou shalt not sort of conduct. Uh, not not Woodward, man. He is just like cutting Tavares off at the neck. Yeah, seems like if you are a, a Trump paid super PAC lawyer, if somebody flips, they're dead to you. Like, they're dead to you. That's right. And that's right. and that's it. And I mean, that's just further evidence, you know, aside from the fact that the the very second that Tavares talked to a public defender, he was like, nope, OK, I want to confess. Oh, this is going to be good. OK, I'm going to tell the whole truth. I'm not going to get indicted. And I fire that guy, you know, like, yeah, all of Would that love to have been a fly on the wall in that meeting where Tavares is like, wait a minute. You mean if I testify, I, I, don't I might not jail? get charged because because. <laughs> Stanley didn't ever tell me that me going to jail was a, was a possibility here. Yeah, so, and we have this yeah. elector, this fraudulent elector lawyer, not telling her clients about potential immunity deals. We have uh, Cassidy Hutchinson's uh, lawyer, yep. Passantino, mm-hmm. um, telling her to say, I don't recall even when you do. Like, there, I, I have to believe that Jack Smith is doing a full-throated investigation into obstruction of justice on behalf of some of these Trump-backed lawyers. We already know he's been asking questions and bringing it up specifically in filings that, first of all, he wanted to file under seal, but the judge Eileen Cannon denied him that, yep. you know, thing, to say, oh, by the way, not only was his lawyer paid for by a Trump pack, but he was recommended by a Trump lawyer. Like, he specifically brought that up. And that you, Jack Smith doesn't strike me as the kind of guy who puts superfluous words in a filing. No. And no. and so if he and Mueller was the same way, or the people who wrote the filings for Mueller, same whoever's writing these filings for Jack Smith, or yep. they're signing off on them. Every word is deliberate, and everything in there is deliberate, especially if you've tried to file it under seal and you were told you couldn't. Um, oh, this is going to be public. Great, let's bring oh, up the fact that Trump is paying for you and was you know. And that he didn't find, he didn't just run into you on a billboard and call up and Google search you. He was, he was directed to have you as an attorney. 
That tells me at least, and, and of course this is just speculation, but that Jack Smith is looking into whether or not these lawyers for people like Hutchinson, Tavares, Nauda, um, you know, that they're being untoward or perhaps, per, perhaps even potentially obstructing justice. So yeah. we will see that in his final report um, because the special counsel is required to tell Congress what he investigated and where he declined to prosecute. So if he did investigate these lawyers and how they were getting paid and if they were suborning perjury of their very own clients, um, that'll be in there. Yeah. I mean, to be clear, he kind of has to, right? Whether or not he has any intention or opportunity later to turn any of this into criminal charges or allegations, you know, we don't know. It's possible, but it's hard to say. But he has to go through this, this, these math problems to figure out how he's going to access the witnesses that he needs. A lot of these people are being represented by this little consortium of Trump pack lawyers. And he's got to figure he's, this is like chess, right? You got to play multiple moves out. And so he is, I think, very strategically using these con conflict of interest Garcia hearing requests as a way of trying to split off some potentially important witnesses or cooperators from lawyers who are, who are kind of prohibiting them from cooperating. It's, it's not an unethical strategy that he's pursuing because these people no. actually have pretty significant potential conflicts and their clients should be made aware of it and should be given the opportunity to decide whether or not they're going to waive it. And, and of course, that's the job for the judge uh, to make that call in the Garcia hearing. But And he's also kind of ringing an alarm bell like, hey, Walt yeah. Nauta and Dale Oliveira. That's right. Think about this. Tavares has not been indicted. And you are facing 20 plus years. That's the excruciating thing, though. I mean, Tavares is a good guy to have on your witness roster, but he's no Nada, right? And he's no, he's not even a Dale Rivera. Like either to either of those two guys, if they cooperated, could blow the, the lid off of the obstruction side of this case. Um, and Nada, the obstruction and, you know, espionage side of the case. So, um, yeah, it's it's kind of remarkable that uh, neither of them have kind of leaned in that direction yet, but we don't know what's going on behind the scenes either. Have you ever dealt with a, uh, like a, a client who was reticent to cooperate that had a shitty lawyer and and, you know, do you or do you kind of go easy on them? Like like if, let's say now to turn around now and said, OK, I want to cooperate. Um Usually because you're the second or third guy to cooperate, you don't get as good a deal as the first guy. But maybe That's because right. you know that you had potentially a lawyer that was not telling you the full story about the, the benefits of cooperating as they're supposed to, that maybe you, you are a little easier on them. Maybe you say, hey, yeah, come on over. We won't charge you. Um, because I think usually you would still charge them. They would just plead to a lesser charge or something and, and do much shorter amounts of, of time. But maybe in a case where the lawyer is ba is behaving badly, have you ever seen and worked with any cooperators like that? I've definitely worked with cooperators who we were able to split off from their counsel, get them other counsel. And then, you know, they didn't start out cooperating, but then they eventually came on to the government side uh, with new attorneys. It, it comes up pretty frequently in organized crime cases where, you know, the mobsters yeah. are very good at joint defense agreements and using 
the kind of in-house counsels they always use to keep everybody's mouth shut. Um, and there's a process called ghost counsel where if a defendant who is represented, so therefore you can't talk to them, right, because they have a lawyer, if they somehow contact the government and say that they feel like they are in danger, like I'm, I can't talk, I, I want to talk to the government, but I can't because my lawyer won't let me and I'll be killed if I do, that sort of thing. You can actually go in front of the judge and um, in camera, so without the defense present, and the judge can pull that defendant in and question them to determine whether or not it's a legitimate request and this is something they really want and do they really want to get away from their lawyer and is there safety involved? And so you appoint a ghost counsel to advise them. Mm, I see. Can you do it if there's no threat of physical harm? I, you know, I've not seen it done in that situation. doesn't mean you can't. This has just been my experience. But in any case, if, you, if we think about it in terms of Nauta and De Oliveira, you know, they're very different than Tavares because they're already charged. Well, so isn't there's that kind of what happened up in Judge Boasberg's court when they did a Garcia hearing up there and the judge was like, talk to this public defender? I mean, that's what happened for Tavares, right? Yeah. But he wasn't charged at right. the time. So, so the fact that Nauta and De Oliveira are currently charged, even if they wanted to get on the government's side now, which there's probably still an opportunity to do that, they're not going to walk away scot-free like Tavares because they're already carrying a charge. And, and you also have credibility problems with them because they came in and lied. Um, when you decide to make someone a cooperator, you have to acknowledge, you, you understand that there's a downside. You're going to put them in front of the jury. They're going to tell their story of the case or their whatever evidence they have. And then on cross-examination, the defense attorneys are going to point out the fact that they got a benefit for providing testimony. And that they use that to undermine the credibility of the witness in the eyes of the jury. So you can't just give a cooperator like the most unbelievable deal of the of in the world because you're actually contributing to undermining their their uh, credibility like that. The way you quote unquote rehabilitate a cooperator is you make them plead to a significant offense. They have to tell you the truth about everything they did, and then they have to plead to something it's less than they would have had to plead I to see. if they weren't cooperating, but it's still a significant thing. And you make it clear to the jury on direct examination that the benefit from their cooperation depends upon them providing truthful testimony in court. It has to be frustrating to, to have to explain that to a jury every time. Like, it's yes, very hard. our cooperators are bad guys. Here's why they're doing this. <laughs> you know, they're this bad is dudes and they're doing yeah. this to get a benefit. But the way the system is structured, they don't get the benefit until after they've testified in front of you. And if we determine that they didn't tell you the truth, they get no benefit. So the incentive is for them to tell the truth and provide good testimony. And that, yeah. in that way, the jurors can rely on what these bad guys who lie all the time, you can rely on what they say. Now, I had a case where we had a cooperator who was just a horrible human being, and he took the stand and testified very well, told a truthful and accurate story, um, but the jury just hated him because he had done so many horrendously awful things in his life. 
and we we got was an it Rick Gates? <laughs> no, no. I wish. I wish. Um, no, the jury much hated that guy, guy too. Gates. But the but you know even the MAGA the rural juror was like it's a documents case. So yeah, yeah. Um, so it's hard. You know, it's cooperators are you know you get <laughs> tricky. the you benefit of great testimony hopefully, uh, but they come with baggage that you have to kind of you know, prepare the jury for. Yeah, and so in this particular case, he's going to say, yeah, his his lawyer was a pile of shit. Uh, mm-hmm. And and it was after he spoke to an actual public defender that he went, that the lights came on. And that's why yeah. he's why he's cooperating. That is going to really impact a jury hugely. It is. I and he's a, he's a good, he's a good and decent witness. He doesn't really do anything wrong here other than lying to the government the first time he met. Well, with we him. don't know because the story in the indictment ends where he was asked to help delete. We don't know if he actually did help delete. Uh, yeah. we, I think he did contact one of the calamaris to see what he could do. So he may have actually done some That's bad true. stuff. I but, mean, he pushed back he was, a little. He pushed he back a little. Only, he said, I don't have the rights to do it. And I well, don't know the how. administrative rights. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but he, you know, he he was only facing, I think, a perjury, a lying, uh, a false right. false statements charge. Right. Uh, he wasn't facing a destruction of evidence charge or anything like right. that. Um, but that again might have just been to get him uh, yeah. to cooperate. We don't know, but we will so find out. Compare him to Nada, right? Nada yeah. was like moving boxes <laughs> around and and f- taking secret flights to Florida to destroy evidence. I mean, like he's in the thick of it. Like Nada yeah. does not, and then he came in and lied. Mm-hmm. To the government now, he's facing a thousand and one charge. So he does not become a cooperator without pleading guilty to some significant hits, which he could lower his sentencing exposure on if he cooperated effectively and truthfully. There's still an incentive to do it, but it's a longer road. Significantly, and I think some another news story came out to show that um, we we found out that there was a plea agreement offered to the Proud Boys in their seditious conspiracy case. And, you know, he was facing, Enrique Tarrio was facing 33 years. He mm-hmm. got 22, but that deal granted him nine years. And he turned it down. Um, yeah. So one was, offered 18, uh, one was offered six years, he got 18. Another six years, he got 17. Another got four years, was offered four years, he got 12. Another one was six yeah. years, he got 15. And those are still significantly under the the sentencing guidelines we may see Merrick Garland also uh, file his intent to appeal these sentences for being so far below the sentencing guidelines but we now have all this public information first of all from this filing from Jack Smith that hey if you cooperate you don't get indicted and we also have this new you know deal out here uh the Proud Boys deal well whoa you know I might not get you know off scot-free but I would be facing less than half the time if I, if I work with the government here. Um, and I think that, that the, the, these stories uh, are significant and I'm glad they're being told. So um, let's, let's move on to questions because I know we are uh, just about out of time, but we, want, yep. we have some really great listener questions uh, that, that have been sent in. What do we have this week? We do. Okay, the first one comes to us from Jane. And Jane says, what is the statute of limitations for bringing indictments against other people in either of Jack's current cases? And what would the statute of limitations be on any new cases he might bring? And then she says, never miss a Sunday update. Thank you. Thank you, Jane. And I, th- I appreciate the question. And it's, I think it's good with a lot of what we've covered today, talking about the possibility of other people getting indicted in the Trump January 6th federal case, or the I should say the aftermath of that, because I think it wouldn't happen until after that case is pretty much done. Um, so generally, uh, 
federal criminal statutes have a five-year statute of limitations, and that's under 18 U.S.C. 3282. Um, and that is that means you have to indict the person within five years after the crime was committed. So in a case like a conspiracy case, like a 371 case, which we know we're, we have a few of those we've been talking about, that would be five years from the last overt act. So if the conspiracy started, you know, months before the election in 2020, but it continued into January of 2021, and the last overt act takes place, that's when the five-year clock starts ticking. Now, some, uh, okay, so that's the general rule for federal criminal offenses, but there are exceptions, of course. Some have no statute of limitations, like, uh, the few ways that the government, the federal government charges murder, so that's like capital murder, genocide, stuff like that, they don't have any statute of limitations. Um, and then other crimes like mail fraud and wire fraud, which we were talking about today in the context of the PACS uh, fundraising, uh, those have a 10-year statute of limitations. So bottom line, I don't think the statute of limitations is a real problem here since you probably could get uh, most of this stuff drifted into 2021, which takes you to January 2026. Um, and I so and again, you don't have to have the case completed, tried, sentence. It just means the indictment has to uh, have been returned uh, within the statute. So I think we're probably on okay grounds there. Yeah, and you can even file indictments under seal um, to to stop that clock from ticking. Um, but yeah, generally. Generally, and I think this is probably true for Jack Smith and, and most of the Department of Justice, it, you indict when you're ready to indict. Um, yeah. You don't like a lot of people were thinking that Mueller had filed some stuff under seal to get it on, you know, get it on in under the clock. And then like, we'll we'll bring it out when we win the presidency back. You know, I was like, I, I don't really see that as a, a something <laughs> that, that would be happen that way. <laughs> that would be happening. You know, th- um, that happens in cases like. We indicted Osama bin Laden for years, but had no chance of actually getting him and didn't want him to know he was indicted. Like, so that remained sealed for a while, things like that. But you, you know, it's really dangerous to do that in a case involving dangerous people because if it comes out that you had an indictment against someone and you could have arrested them and put, placed them in custody, and then after that point they went out because you didn't execute killed somebody and, else and yeah. killed someone else. And then it's like, Hey, that, you know, you should have stopped that. So yeah, it's typically, we don't sit on those for, uh, for any old reason. No, makes sense. Thanks for that question. Uh, we have a form, a link to a form you can fill out to send us a question in the show notes. We appreciate your questions. Keep sending them in. We have so many good ones. Uh, and we appreciate, uh, we, like, the details, the, the amount of detail in these questions is so awesome. I mean, our, it's this- really remarkable. And it helps me even to just, you know, obviously we can't uh, read all of them on the air, but it helps to read them to see like what people are thinking about and how the show is impacting the way they see the issues. And it helps me in when I'm preparing for these, for these episodes. And, and I kind of keep it in the back of my mind as like things we should bring up during the show. So it's super helpful and I uh, really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we'll be back next week. Who knows what's going to happen? Spin the wheel of (laughs) the special counsel wheel. What's going to happen next week? You have to do it in a Don Pardo voice. Um, (laughs) What will we be talking about next week? Uh, It's a brand new car. (laughs) Yeah, Jan Hooks. Uh, Who knows? It could really, it could be anything. Uh, But we look forward to discussing it here 
on the Jack Podcast. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Andy McCabe. And we'll see you next week. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.